John chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you not greater, or are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we just yield our lives to you. We thank you how you go after and pursue people. Thank you for pursuing us. Lord, we want to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We want to be made into mature disciples. Thank you, Lord, that you always keep working in our lives to bring us more and more into maturity. We're thankful, Father, that the abundant life is the life of maturity. And so we want to grow. We want to bless you with our lives, with our speech, with our motives, with our service, with everything that you've entrusted to us. Lord, help us to be serious about the things of you. Help us all in this church, your church, to yield to you moment by moment by your Holy Spirit, to be available, to be used however you choose to use us, Lord. Thank you that you want to use us despite all of our sin, despite all of our shortcomings and our failures. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for sins we haven't even committed yet. You've thought of everything. And we, the worshipers, Lord, here that represent worship to you, our hearts, Lord, we ask that you would teach us and guide us and bring us into all truth. We yield ourselves to you, and we entrust it to you by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It seems like every time, and it's only happened two other times, but every time we move into a new place, the Lord leads my heart to this passage. And I'm not saying it's going to keep happening every time we move, okay? I don't know. I have no idea how he's going to lead and all of that, but he leaned heavily on my heart to focus on this passage once again. One of the most powerful passages of just, you know, just revealing God's heart that are in the entire Bible. Just to see the Lord Jesus interact with this, with this woman. It's so beautiful. Isn't his heart amazing? The more you get to know him, the more you get to see what he does given the chance to work. It's amazing. There's nothing like discovering what his heart is for you. That's kind of how we come to know him. Learning what his heart is for us, but then also learning what his heart is for others and how he wants to use us to affect other people's lives. There's a lot of things that are happening in these 42 verses, but we're going to mainly see Jesus orchestrate this encounter with this woman. To me, it's noteworthy that she's not named, you know, Betty Smith or Gertrude Johnson or probably, well, it doesn't sound really Samaritan-ish-esque, uh, whatever that way to say it would be, but it's just a woman. And I like that because it, she, it speaks to us that there's, there's people all over the place where no one really knows their name or they're not famous or whatever, but God has an eye on people. He has an eye on people whether they're famous or not. He loves everybody. And the beautiful thing is God knew her name. Not many people knew her name probably, but he knows her name and he knows when he pursues somebody what their name is. 
as we're led by the Holy Spirit and as we're available to be used by him to go and to do and to say the things that he wants us to say for him, we don't know their name at first. We don't know what their background is. We don't know anything. But he just says at that, that gas station where you're pumping the, deciding whether or not you're going to take care of your car and do a premium little thing there, or you're going to do the unleaded, or you're going to put accidentally put diesel in your car. Um, that's happened before in my household. Um, it's not fun, but you know, you're, you're just there in, in the moment at a place, and then God leans on your heart. That's where he wa- what he wants us to be, is sensitive to being able to be directed at any given moment, to be a spokesman for him, to be somebody that's available to preach the gospel, to serve somebody, all those things, that's what he wants. And so we're going to see him pursue peep this woman and, and the rest of the Samaritans as well, but also he's going to reveal himself as the Messiah to her so strongly and so directly. I don't think there's another place where, you know, I know he said, I am the Christ to the disciples. I mean, after Peter said that, he affirmed that. But just to be able to come out and say, especially to someone that's not a 100% Jewish and all of that, to be able to say just so boldly and bluntly and effectively that he's the Messiah. We don't, I don't think we see that anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's so many lessons for us. Let's just jump in in verse 1. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So the orientation, if you're newer to the Bible, the orientation to help you understand where Judea is and, and Galilee is, Judea is in the south part of Israel, and then Judea is in the north part of Israel. And there's a geographical prejudice that occurred at that time. In fact, even today, if you're in Jerusalem, you start talking about the Galilee and all of that, they kind of look down upon, even today, and they did back then. It's kind of like how some people in some urban places or populated places, they'll maybe sometimes look down on people in the country or the south in in, uh, America, uh, down in the south and so forth. But there was definitely a prejudice there. And And it's sad because it's completely unnecessary. And, and so here she was, someone that was from um, Samaria. We, Samaria, we would call that the West Bank today. And we're told in verse 3 that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And we're told the reason, at least in part, at the beginning of verse 1, where it says that the Pharisees had heard of Jesus' baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. So a little baptism competition going on here. A uh, little jealousy, a little envy, but really what it's about is bapti- baptisms kind of translate or follow from uh, converts or followers, and that means to the Pharisees that they're losing influence. See, that's what they were all about is influence, because the influence over the people translated into money, fundage, you know, coin. You know, the, it, it translated into money and influence and power, and that's what uh, John the Baptist was to them. He was a threat to them in many ways. And then now they're seeing the Lord Jesus' ministry eclipse his ministry. And so that concerned, that concerned them. And he doesn't, he's not interested at this time of any kind of confrontation or anything like that. He's going to continue to do what, he, what he's going to do. And so um, we see that. But then notice what Jesus needed to do in verse 4. We're told, but he needed to go through Samaria. No Jew ever needed to go through Samaria for anything back then at all, through the West Bank, as we would call it today. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. 
Back in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the, the northern tribes of Israel and displaced them, some of whom ended up in, back in Assyria. And then they took some from their area and brought them to that part of Israel. And that was their tactic. They did it all the time. And it, it helped make the people lose their national identity. So they were at least let, um, not as likely to try to rise up and, and overthrow them once they occupied a place. And so that's how the Samaritans came um, into existence. And so the, the Jews didn't like them. So now we have not just geographical prejudice, now we have racial pre- uh, prejudice there. The Jews didn't like them. The, the Samaritans, I'm sure, didn't like them either. And so to go north, normally you would, they would go around. So if, if you're looking at a map this way from your perspective, they would come up from Judea and they would go over by uh, Jericho. And then they'd go up the Jordan Valley and come over and then cut over to Galilee. So the, that wasn't the faster way. It was the worst roads. It was hotter. It was just not convenient, but they disliked them so much, they'd rather go around. How does that make you feel? And someone has to go all the way around someplace to avoid you because they don't want to even see you. That doesn't feel very good. But the faster way would be just to go straight up through all the way to Samaria. And that route would be about 70 miles, about the distance between here and Berkeley, about 70 miles. So that would be the direct route. But they'd go around because they didn't want to have to, to deal with them. So she's... So she's a person that already is, has to deal with, in a general sense, the geographical prejudice, now also the racial prejudice. And so Jesus, he's not going to deal with any of those things. He's not going to succumb to those things, obviously. He loves everybody the same and all of that. And so he did need to go through Samaria or to Samaria because he, he didn't have a hatred for them. But he had an appointment with a certain woman. And that's what we see. Look at verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So people don't know whether or not this sixth hour is noon. That would be Jewish time, because the day started at 6 a.m. Or if this is 6 p.m. and this is Roman time. A lot of people think it's Roman time because there's other places in the Gospel of John that he references Roman time. We don't know. But one thing we do know is that in verse 7 where it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So this woman of Samaria is there, and she's at this, and so whether it's noon or whether it's 6 p.m., that's the, not the most of the time that you would go to get water. It doesn't matter which one, it's an evidence of something. This woman, she comes at a time where there's, there's the least amount of other women that would be there. That would be the main people that are there would be the women. They would come and get water and all of that. They do all the hard work. No, I'm just kidding. But they do a lot of hard work in every time period. But they, you know, they would come and get their waters and all of that uh, for, for the day. And, and so she comes. And, and so this kind of speaks of her social condition. Again, whether it's noon or 6 p.m. So she has this geographical thing which wasn't pronounced. And she'd have to deal with it a lot. There was this racial prejudice going on. But then there's this social, um, basically this being an outcast in a sense, you have to remember, again, we're going to be told, and we've already read it, that she has had five husbands. Now, even in our country, back in the 50s and 60s, to, have, to be uh, in a divorced, from a divorced family, that was a stigma that was pretty significant. 
That was just, you know, 50, 60 years ago. So imagine five marriages there that she's had, and now she's living with somebody. And, and so this is not acceptable in their culture. Samaritans did not believe in all of the Old Testament. They just believed in the, in the law. So basically the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that's what they believed. So what they did was all the history and all of that, they kind of contorted the history to fit their ancestors and all of that and it kind of had a revisionist history going on and so she has she definitely has this situation where she is an outcast in a sense and she's been rejected most likely and I mean she has does have some influence because they listen to her when she goes back but she still has had this this whole entire thing unfold in her life and notice in verse 9 she acknowledges the religious and racial divide that exists Verse 9 says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, so she's recognizing the difference there, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John adds, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Because people, the people to whom he was writing didn't know all this kind of dynamics that were going on. And so he adds that in for the reader because they wouldn't know this. But if you were from there and you were Jewish and all of that, you definitely would know all of that. That would be common knowledge. That would be just so basic. Everybody would know it. But he adds it in. And the last part of verse 9, when he says that, you know, they have no dealings with Samaritans. It's obvious that she knew that. Because you can, she's asking the question, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? Now, rabbis wouldn't even talk to women, period. So that, that was another thing. And the disciples are going to stumble over this as we get to the verses. But, but, but to have him speak to a woman and then a Samaritan woman on top of that, that is pretty significant. And one of the things that I saw here that's interesting is that look at the end of verse 9, the word have. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's present tense. That's not had dealings. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans when John's writing this. But he's writing this around 90 AD. That's about 50 or 60 years removed from the death of Christ and his resurrection. So this kind of tension and this animosity and all of that was true in John's day when he's an elderly man, probably in his 90s. And, and he's saying right now the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this was carrying over for decades after the, the cross and, and the effect of Christianity on the area. Still, there was those issues that people had with each other. You know, in this world, and especially this country, is getting worse and worse with this type of thing. Where it's just getting hyped up and hyped up and hyped up. And it, it's, it's sad that you have these, these, dividing, these dividing lines and these... These, this racial tension and all of that. And as Christians, you know, we have, to come, we have to deal with that appropriately. We need to love everybody the same. And just, just, because you haven't, just because you haven't gone in someone's shoes, or just when you haven't gone in someone's shoes, which is you know, true for all of us with other, someone else's life, don't assume you know what they've gone through. Don't assume you know what their background is. Don't assume you know what they've dealt with. Ask questions. Find out what it's like to have walked in their shoes. Understand them a little bit. Don't assume that you know. I'm learning greatly that lesson, and we all need to continue to learn that. Then Jesus answers, it's beautiful in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, what's he talking about? The gift of God. 
gift of God is salvation. Salvation's a gift. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, there's no place that Jesus talked about salvation being a gift. That's right here. You knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, talking about him being the Messiah. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he says he's getting to who he is and he's going to reveal that in a moment. But he talks about this living water. What's living water? Living water is running water. That's what it is. There was water that didn't have a spring and it was just you know, just, uh, you know, just a, a body of water with no natural source or whatever. The Dead Sea would be an example of that. That's the reason why they call it dead, because there's, there's nothing going into There's no spring. But living water is like a spring. So they were very familiar with that. Now, he's at a well. <laughs> so that she knows all about this, and he's saying, if you would have um, known the gift of God and who it is who says, give me a drink, you, you would have asked him. So you have to ask. See, salvation is something you have to ask. It's not done for you automatically. You have to ask. You ask for those things. You don't work for those things. You ask, and he, and he loves uh, to give it. And that's what he says at the end of verse 10. And he would have given you. It's a gift. You can't, when we present the gospel, we're going to be presenting the gospel a lot in the next year or two. When we present the gospel, we have to make sure we communicate that it is something that you can't earn. Many times when I share the gospel, when other people share the gospel, and you're able to communicate that you can't pay for a gift, and I usually use my watch example, it's the one I learned, if I want to give you my watch and you gave me money for it in exchange for it, would it still be a gift? And I just let them think about it for a minute, and they usually come with the, the right answer, no. It, 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 you can't earn a gift, that's right. Once you pay me for it, not only does it become offensive to me, but it ceases to be a gift. And here are the verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 2, this ver- there's all kinds of verses that talk about salvation being a gift. And so you can't earn a gift. And he wants to give it, but you have to ask. You have to receive. And it's beautiful when you're on the receiving end of that. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As soon as, uh, as well as his sons and his livestock. So she's thinking on the physical plane here. She's not understanding what he's saying. He's, she's still thinking physical water here. And, and he talks about their father Jacob and her. she's taking some obviously pride and, and some identity and her ancestors and Jacob and so forth. Which again there's the same. They divided off at 722 BC. That's when the Samaritans started. <laughs> so before that. There was, they were, they were, you know, part of the Jewish people and all of that. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a foundation of water springing up into everlasting life. And you could just meditate on verses 13 and 14 all day long, just thinking about it. It's amazing just to think about what he offers and how he blesses us, how he gives us this spiritual uh, refreshment and makes our dead spirits alive when we come to Christ and now we're overflowing and so forth. So it's this spiritual water and it's completely proficient to meet our spiritual thirst. It's funny in in an ironic way when people say, well, I'll try Christianity. You don't try Christianity. Either you receive Christ or you don't receive Christ. And nobody that truly receives Christ looks at it 
over the years and look back, looks back with any kind of regret whatsoever. You don't thirst. You know, I, this spring, um, it'll be 27 years walking with Christ. And I can say truly that I haven't regretted one day of walking with Christ. Not one day would I ever look back and say, I'll, I'll trade this, whatever the alternative is. The alternative is, is discipline. And going my own way and, and, and doing things in a way that pleases my flesh and all of that. There's nothing but the Lord's discipline related to that. So there, once, there is a true satisfaction that comes and we don't spiritually thirst again. We don't, we don't, we're not looking around for the fulfillment in life and the key to life and all of that. All of that is settled when we receive Christ. And it's beautiful. He loves the fact that we're satisfied. You know, sometimes when you cook, and I'm not one of them unless we're doing Pop-Tarts, um, that counts. Uh, but, you know, when you cook and you prepare a meal for someone, one of the things, um, you know, Mama Pacheco always, you know, she feeds me, you know, and uh, she gets satisfaction by me eating and being satisfied and being blessed and all of that. But just think how much on a superior level it is for God when he sees that we're satisfied spiritually. And that we're not thirsting anymore. It's a huge thing. It's a huge thing for, for him. And he enjoys it so much for us to see us living that satisfied life of just having our spiritual thirst quenched. We don't have to look in a million different places. We don't, we're not searching anymore. We found him. And he brings all the fulfillment that we would ever need. And notice in verse 15, the woman gives an answer we, we don't expect when we share our faith. Look at her answer in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She said yes. She wanted it. God was working. Why are we surprised when people have a good response to the gospel? They said yes. They actually wanted to pray the prayer. They actually wanted to receive Christ. Why are we surprised? Because we don't believe Jesus' assessment of the harvest field. That's why. Jesus said it's ripe. He didn't. So when you go into an orchard that someone's told you it's ripe and ready to harvest, you don't go into the harvest field and just go, wow, it's like this fruit's ready to be picked. It's amazing. Like, this is crazy. I'm, I'm blowing my mind. You don't do that. You go, yeah, it's, it's, it's the time. That's what we were told. So let's, let's harvest. But we think, oh, this is hard ground. This is hard ground. I hear talk to pastors all over the country. And you're like, brother, this is hard ground where I'm at like wherever we go it's hard ground well where is it soft ground you know it's like i haven't seen that yet you know we're not the harvest he doesn't build his 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 orchards and all of that in in, in sand i mean where it's soft or whatever it, it has to be tilled it has to be worked and all of that i think that he invented farming to reflect the spiritual process of preaching the gospel and planting seeds and having him water and all of that he's not mirroring the physical act of farming he's mirroring the physical act of farming after the spiritual the reality the eternal and he and all of us are a part of that whether we like it or not sometimes we go i don't want to be part of the great commission i don't want to i don't want to be i don't want to do that we haven't we haven't we don't have that luxury we've been bought with a price and he has a heart for the world and he calls each of us to get our eyes off ourselves and onto him and onto others. To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Some people wonder, what do, you, what, what do we do when we gather as the church? We do those two things. That's all the things that he says 
It encompasses Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4, all the things that it's just loving him and loving other people. And what the enemy wants to do is get our focus on ourselves so much. And we need to focus on ourselves to a point we're stewards of a, of a lot of things. We need to give attention to those things or else we're not being responsible. But we can get so sidetracked. And, and the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12 to, to remove the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he's our example. And that whole picture and imagery is about a marathon race. And marathon runners focus. They have a focal point. They're always watching. Not that I know by experience, okay? Trust me. You guys know that. But I can do it. I can support it in theory and know about it in theory. But uh, they, they've, they're on a focal point. They're looking at things and all of that. And, and they're, they're, they want to be exactly how they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be. They're focused and and. For us, when we preach the gospel, we're getting our eyes off ourselves. When we're consistent, related to our time with him, we're getting our focus off ourselves and onto him. You know, you wouldn't eat once a week and think and expect that you're going to be healthy, right? You would never think that. But if we only feed ourselves spiritually once a week, once a month, once every holiday or whatever it is, why would we expect that we're going to be healthy spiritually? It's unreasonable. It's illogical to think that. We have to feed ourselves spiritually. Jesus had time with the Father every day. He didn't have a sin nature. He was the Son of God. He was God in human flesh. He wanted us to to follow him in his footsteps. Now, all of us can get beat up, and all of us can, you know, oh, I should always do more, and that's true. We can always do better. We know that. But the disciple of Jesus Christ, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Ouch. Take up my cross daily and follow me. That's the key to the abundant life. He who wants to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. And there's all kinds of books and teachers and influences out in this world that are doing their best to teach us how to save our lives and call it spirituality and call it Christianity. But it's not. What's Christianity is learning how to be a disciple. Jesus said at one point, if you don't forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. It's like, did I just read that? <laughs> it's like, did it say that? Like, did I borrow this Bible and it's, they wrote it in? I mean, it's convicting. It's, that's, that's what true discipleship is, is putting him first and submitting to his plan on each and every day. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But she says, give me this water. She knows. Can't be surprised about those things. You've got to expect those things. Because he said the harvest is ripe. So we should expect a harvest, right? Am I just talking to myself here? Are we awake? Okay, let's let, think about this. He wants to help us reach people for eternity. Reach, reach people for eternity. Not just help their, their lives out now. Reach people for eternity. That's why God's placed us here in part. There's needs around us, these neighborhoods. But not just around these neighborhoods, all over the city. He wants to use us, and he is using us, because so, God has his eye on the people. He sees each person individually. We don't. We see masses of people. We see lots of traffic, and it's all just bunches of people. He sees, doesn't pe- see people in groups like that. He sees individuals. And, and we have to be sensitive to that as well. His eyes are on all the women of the, of the wells. Every well. Every place, he has his eye on 
the men as well, the men at the wells, you know, the people that are empty, the people that are hurting, the single mom who's struggling just to pay the bills, who's playing both roles, is trying to just put food on the table and try to help their children be raised in the right way and all of that and, and, and don't know where to go. Don't have, don't, they don't know the Lord. They don't know how, to, how they can get helped. Or the elderly person who's been abandoned by their kids. How many elderly people are forgotten that are in rest homes all over this area that we could visit them? And they'd look forward to us every week coming to them and visiting them, maybe leading them to Christ. Many of them know the Lord already. I mean, he sees those people. He sees the children that have no hope, that have lost parents, that are in foster care. He sees those people. He sees the youth, the, the high school kids that come from Manteca High or, or the, the elementary school Lincoln down here, those families. We want to adopt schools. We're going to adopt and, and help needy children. We're going to bring backpacks to them. We're going to serve the schools. We're going to have every way that we can be an influence here. We're going to open this thing up for as much as we possibly can within limits. Uh, Tim gets a lot out of control sometimes with some of that stuff. It's like, I'm not even going to give, tell, tell you some of his ideas. Uh, you won't be listening the rest of the time, you know, so I'm not going to share that. But I appreciate that he's open to anything and wants this place to be used greatly. But what about the children or the people that, the mom or dad, the people that are hopeless, they don't know, they know there's something wrong, but they can't figure out what it is. What it is is the gospel. They're not connected with God through a relationship with Jesus. And we're here wanting to obey the Great Commission and preach that gospel to them and give them hope. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus needs to go to Manteca. He needs to go to Lathrop. He needs to go to Tracy. He needs to go to Ripon. He really needs to go to Ripon. He needs to go to people that have no clue about what it means to be a Christian or, or they're deciding what it means to be a believer. And they're hurting. And they're crying themselves to sleep. And they're praying to God, God, help me. Send help, send help, send help. We have to be sensitive to that. They're empty and spiritually bankrupt and Jesus wants to meet their needs. He loves pursuing people still. But he hears from us sometimes the complaints about the harvest field. I don't really want to talk to that person. No, they're not, they're not like kind of me, so I don't feel comfortable being around them. Be around them. Be around people that aren't like you. You might actually learn that they're better than you in a lot of things and they can give you a lot of perspective and you can learn a lot from, from them. He needs workers. That's what he wants. He told, told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest. He would send workers into the harvest field. God's solution to a reaping of a harvest is not improving the harvest field. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with it. He says what's wrong in that arrangement is there's not enough workers to go in and serve and get out there and do the work. Because it's required. Someone has to get out. Those farmers that farm those fields, they have to get out in those fields. They can't chick, uh, um, kick back on their couch and just say, you know what? I believe in theory that we should be out there. I believe that it makes a difference. I believe that we're supposed to, but there's other people that can do it, and so I'm just going to stay here and let someone else farm it. His whole crop would die. And, and we think it's less important, but it isn't. It's actually more important for what we're talking about with the harvest and the spiritual things. We don't see how people's hearts really are when we look at them. We don't see what they're really 
how they're really doing. People put on this great facade. We do it too. (laughs) There's a Pharisee in each one of us. We can put on a facade. That's great. But they are hurting. And we have the answers, church. We have the gospel. We have the, it's the power of God and the salvation for all those that believe. And he's just waiting for us to be willing to do it. And willing to go out and, and preach that gospel. I want to read to you a couple of verses out of Acts 16. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we're told in later in the passage that when Paul went there to Macedonia, there, and he was, and he met, there was no, there was not even ten men, uh, ten male Jews, adult men that were Jews, because they didn't have a synagogue. They were meeting at the river, and Paul and his team they went down there and they met Lydia. Lydia was, man, she could have owned a well or two. <laughs> she was wealthy. She dealt in purple. You know, you had to crush bugs and do all this crazy stuff to get purple dye back then. And she was wealthy. And because of that, the gospel, already in, in Europe, but it, through Paul's ministry, began in Europe that way. All from a vision of him hearing God used a vision to come help us. See, that's what God has done he, by bringing us here. He wants us to help everyone that comes in our sphere of influence from every area and to be available to preach the gospel to them because that's what Paul did. Paul preached the gospel to them and they got saved and they responded. Again, let's not be surprised when they respond. Important. Now notice in verse 16, Jesus exposes her attempts to fill her thirst for fulfillment. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. See, Jesus knew her already. Knew her past, knew her present, definitely knew her future. And I cannot overstate the stigma of this kind of life in this culture, that again, that she had. She had a great stigma, and she was trying to quench her thirst through relationships. So geographical prejudice, racial prejudice, social prejudice, and now she's a person that has had her hopes dashed. Do you know how many people are around this church, in these neighborhoods, in this city, that have had their hopes dashed? They thought one day their lives would be great. Their parents thought their lives would be great, but it didn't happen that way. And now they're hurting, and now they're open in ways that they maybe have never been open before, ready for the gospel, ready to hear the gospel. And we need to be faithful to be there to bring that gospel. We can't be frittering our life away. We need to be tuned in and ready and equipped and willing to go and do what he's called us to do. We're going to look back just in a year and be so shocked of what he's done in 2017. You know, and I've, I've... I don't have no idea what it's going to be, but I know it's going to be huge. He hasn't done what he's done to get us here to just not do a great work by the Holy Spirit. If we stay yielded to him, we have to stay yielded and dependent upon him. So he knows her past. He's trying to quench this thirst through relationships. And man after man have dashed those hopes and her thinking, you know, you can imagine. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. 
nope, 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 nope. And then she's on her sixth one now. And she's like, I'm even going to get married. Forget it. I'm just going to try and just see how this works. She's desperate. She's trying to find that fulfillment. And there are people all around that have had their hopes dashed. They're trying every which way to have their needs met other ways. And they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, notice that, he's seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So she has a geographical idea of worship. And that was very common. They had the temple, they had you know, all those things. But God was changing that because of the Lord Jesus and being able to worship God and have the temple in, uh, be us and be, have the Holy Spirit overflowing our lives, this living water. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we, we can worship God every, anywhere we want to worship him at any time. We don't have to relate to him through a, a priesthood or a building or a denomination or anything like that. It's beautiful. But he's seeking worshipers. Worshippers wanted, put a sign up. Worshippers wanted. And that means not just singing, it means our whole lives represent worship. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The most direct, clear revelation of the Lord Jesus' Messiahship in the New Testament, I believe. Just absolutely clear. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came, they marveled, and he talked with a woman, that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, who do you seek, or why are you talking with her, they don't want to ask, they're just, they know better than that, Um, if he wants to tell them, that's great, but right now they're just keeping their mouth shut, which is great for them, (laughs) they need to learn more and more how to do that, and so do we. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, See a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I don't remember Jesus saying everything that she ever did. That's the effect of what he said to her about her relationships. That constituted her whole life, everything that she ever did. That's how much she had tried and tried and tried to have that fulfillment, had that you know, peace and all those things through relationships, and, and, and he didn't go through and itemize everything that she's ever did in her life. But to her, that's what it meant because of the significance of what she had gone through. And he, she says, could this be the Christ? Because in the, in the five books, the Pentateuch, it talked, Moses talked about a prophet coming after him. It's, not, it's in the law. It's in the, it's in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I mean, it's right there where he promises a, a, a Messiah It's all through the Bible. Verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So they're just worried about his eating. They're, you know, like... Like it's, it's so funny watching them 
try to take care of God. You know, it's like uh, trying to take care of, of the Lord Jesus and all of that. And, and they don't, did someone bring him something? I mean, maybe someone brought him a little lunch or something we missed, but what's wrong? Why, why isn't he eating and all of that? And then he says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And that's, and, and that's important because that's true for us. He, we obviously are, have, cannot be called, would never be called to the work that he did, being the Messiah, but he, he's called each of us to do the will of him who sent us. See, he sends us out. See, the word apostle means one who is sent. And he sends us out. That's what the Great Commission is all about, going out. Somehow it's gotten twisted where it's almost like Jesus said, you know, bring all the people into the church and preach the gospel to every creature. It doesn't say that. It says out. Out, 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 out. We bring people in to be discipled. We go out and preach the gospel. That's got all turned around. And there's this cyclical thing that happens where people receive Christ out there because there's no known, there's no recorded conversion in a church in the book of Acts. A, a, a synagogue, yeah, that's not a church though, that's a synagogue. There's no recorded salvation. Now we know what happened, obviously they preach the gospel and anytime unbelievers are around. But mainly and exclusively you see it happen outside the church. They're equipped and willing to do that. Then they'd bring them in to be discipled. That's gotten lost. And it, and it needs to be done. It needs to be cultivated and all of that. But he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's his sustenance. That's what drives him. That's what gets him up in the morning. We should be concerned about the will of God. What's the will of God for your life? How is he leading you? What does he want for your life? He wants you to know that. And he wants you to know more than you want to know. And even though it doesn't culminate for us to finish his work on a cross, he wants to fulfill our ministry. He tells Timothy that. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. He doesn't leave that up to uh, I mean, to him to fulfill it. He says, you fulfill it. Of course, we need to yield to God and follow him and all those things. But we have to fulfill our ministry. It's the same for us. But his heart is for this, the lost, for the needy, for those that the world's forgotten. He hasn't forgotten. Those that have been discriminated against. Those that have suffered, you know, out, they're an outcast in society. Jesus loves them. He pursues them. And if we don't have a heart like that, we're, we're, we have a problem that we need the Lord to work on in us. To have a heart for the people that he has a heart for. Yeah, I can't relate to him, many of them. Yeah, I don't understand. I, yeah, they're different than me. It's okay. Because Jesus has the gospel, and that gospel works for everyone at any time, at any moment, and, he, and, it, and it happens. It'll be the same reaction, just like this woman at the well. Give me a drink. They're going to say, how do I do this? Like, where do I go? How do I receive Christ? I almost had a guy literally almost say, what must I do to be saved with those words almost one time. And I was shocked. I'm like, what? What would you say? Like, wait a minute. you got to think this through. You know, I'm not sure if this is supposed to happen. You know, like, you know, it's just like, wow, this is amazing, this response. But people are thirsty. See, again, the facades aren't the true reality. They can say they're doing great, but they're up to their eyeballs and all kinds of issues. They don't know how they're going to get out of it. They're using all kinds of things to, to medicate those things and to distract their minds from their lives and all of that. We can't come in like Pharisees or like police officers and, or attorneys. We have to come in as paramedics. We need to come in and be, how, how can I help? There's trauma here. What, what do you need? How can I help you? Let me find out about your life. Let me ask you questions. What is your life like? How can I understand how, what it's like to be in your shoes? Because oh, if you don't ask questions, you don't care. 
People don't, that, I mean, you ask, you can't not care and ask questions. I mean, they go together. The last time someone asks you questions is because they care about something in your life. So if you never ask anybody questions, it's hard to imagine that you can say that you care because that's how you find out. That's how you learn what the issues are. And then he gets to the whole process of harvesting in verse 35. Look with me there. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. He's recognizing that these disciples are now getting to be a part of the harvest because this lady going back and all of that, and, and, and they're going to be, get to be a part of that. And those, a lot of times Samaritans, they wore these white robes, and he could have been literally pointing to the people coming as, you know, and say, look, the harvest is ripe. But the point is, spiritually speaking, the harvest is ready to be, it's ready to be reaped and it's ready to be gathered in. He says, verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So it's a team effort. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I ever did. Don't underestimate the power of your testimony. They can't say it didn't happen. Now my sister is here, Laura, and I remember her telling me that our relatives were thinking that she was in a phase for a long time. <laughs> it's been a long phase. 37 years or whatever it's been for her. So that it's, it's, we have to share our testimony. We're going to have, multi, we have, oh, if I just shared with, man, I'm so excited. We have people that have offered, that are professional documentary producers, have offered to make videos for the things that we're involved with related to ministry. They're, they're just offering that up for free. I mean, we need to document those change lives. We're going to have people sharing up here like we have in the past about their sharing their story and their testimonies and all of that. They're so powerful. Don't underestimate how powerful it is. Just say, hey, let, let me, after you're done asking questions and then inquiring, getting to know them, building trust and all that, then they'll, they'll ask you, well, what's your story? Oh, I'm glad you asked. This is what happened. I was a break dancer. <laughs> what? See, that gets it off in a great shock value. You know, it's, it's okay. Sometimes you got to bring out the freak show at first to get their attention or whatever. But, you know, break dancer. I was a ninja at night doing all kinds of bad stuff. Um, and then God saved me through me pursuing a, a girl. Really? Wow, tell me about that. Then I'm sharing with that. And before you know it, I'm getting to the moment of salvation where I receive Christ and all of that. And, and I, it's right there. They're hanging on every word because it's interesting because it's, it's my life. It's unique to me. They can't say it didn't happen. Share your testimony with people. You don't have to say testimony, say my story. Can I share my story with you? Sure. And then ask the question, is it okay if I ask you a spiritual question? It's amazing. I've never had, very few people have said, no, I'd prefer not. Most of them say, sure. Now you can just ask whatever you want because they've given you permission. It's beautiful. People don't know what, 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 they're, what they're okaying to sometimes. So many, it says that, Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Now, again, the culture is staying in the house 
with Samaritans would never happen apart from the Lord Jesus because of... I mean, at one point, John, I think it was James and John, I know it was John, but they wanted to call fire down from heaven. They asked, shall we call fire down from heaven because the Samaritans won't let us stay, you know, and arrange for us to come and all of that. And Jesus says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. First of all, I'm not sure who told you that you can call fire down from heaven, but you can't. And number two, we're supposed to be reaching these people. And God loves everybody. It's incredible. Just, it's so encouraging to see the disciples be who they are because it gives so much hope to us. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice twice the word the appears at the end of verse 42. This is indeed the singular Christ. There's only one Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, he is the Savior. He is the Messiah of the world. Not just the elect. He's the Savior of the world. Everybody. Everybody can be saved. So as we close and we consider just these passages in his heart, we need to see his heart for the lost. To meet people's needs. To find out, what, to find out about them. And to, to be sensitive. We need a lot of people to step up and serve to make what's going to happen happen here. A lot of people in children's ministry. We need a lot of people that serving in the parking lot ministry. We have a parking lot that really needs people to be out there and watching and directing for security and all that. Greeters and hospitality people and um, ushers and sound and technology. We need a lot of people to step up. We'll be giving you those opportunities coming up. But I want to encourage you, if you are feeling that because of what you've done or where you're at in life or whatever, that God's done using you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. He's not done using you. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He, he, when he saved you, he forgave you. I mean, he paid for those sins that we haven't committed yet. As they say, ten steps away, one step back. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that he, we are cre- new creations, or, or he's created us in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. He created us for good works. He created us to make a difference in this world eternally. That's why we're made. That's how we're wired. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit, to be able to preach that gospel, to be able to be bold. And be, I mean, there's so many divine appointments and things that just happen if you're just ready and willing to open your mouth. And I'm not the Mr. Supreme example. Trust me, I miss it a lot too with those things. But the times when I'm tuned in, go talk to that person. When you're at the gas station, go talk to that person. They're dumping watermelons right now. They need, they need me. You know, they're, they're at the mall and they're trying to decide if they're going to buy a Cinnabon and mess up their diet. And God says, hey, go talk to them. You know, I mean, there's all different ways that he can do that. And, and so we just need to be flexible, open and ready to go because his heart is for the lost. He loves every single person. He hears every single cry. He hears every single cry. He hears it, and he matters to him. Remember this, maybe the Ninevites, and Jonah didn't want to go. It's just like a picture of so much of us at times. We don't want to go because we know God's going to be gracious, and, and God will discipline us if we're not willing to go. We need to be ready. Let's pray together. 
Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to have your heart. Help us to put all the things aside. I pray, Lord, that you would infuse so much strategic surgical grace in our hearts to mend our hearts, to heal us and give us hope. Thank you, Father, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you, Lord, that you use us despite ourselves in the first place. Thank you that we can come boldly into the throne room of grace in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus, that you're merciful and you're forgiving. We want to be used by you. We want to be used by you to to have you bring in a multitude, a massive, huge harvest of souls, Lord. We dedicate this building to you. You provided it. Use it for your glory. Make many disciples here. We yield our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.